Amen. Thank you, worship team. Uh, good to see you this morning. I want to invite you to join me in Matthew chapter 27 as you're turning there. Uh, Kyle, I might ask you to give me a little more volume today, and I'll explain why here real quick. Uh, we're going to Matthew 27. I hope that you took advantage of the opportunity to sing with the worship team uh, and sing the truth as to the Lord. What a great way to stir your heart and to worship Him. And that's, as we heard a few weeks ago from Brother Mike Sturgill, this is one of the absolute main reasons the Lord has created us and why we're here, even now, what we will do throughout eternity. Uh, so thank you for being here, and I hope you did that. Um, I kind of laid back today. I didn't do any of the singing. Um, and here's the reason I'm trying to protect my voice. So, you know, like a week ago, Sunday night, I started feeling sick, and some of you know that we canceled Wednesday night, and that is the reason. So I'm all good to go now. I feel great. I'm not in any way contagious, anything like that. But as we've noted a few times in my life, when you go horizontal at night, something happens when you've had that cold in your head, and I just cough and cough and cough, and so I've been on the couch this week, and uh, just coughing, 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 and all the, everybody in their bedrooms, doors are closed, and uh, so my voice is not really good, and I'm really hoping that I don't hit a coughing fit this morning. Um, if that does, that's in the Lord's doing, and uh, he'll just have to help us to get as far as we get this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to probably be uh, externally a little less caffeinated, maybe, in how I say some things, but in my heart, my heart is full uh, for this passage that we're looking at. You're in Matthew 27. So probably a couple of months ago now, uh, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I made a statement that morning that we were entering some of the most sacred. So all of the Scripture is sacred. Uh, and I'm not pitting some against or as greater than the other, but I guess in a way I am saying that. So what we're going to be looking at this morning is just a few verses, but its content is some of the greatest uh, in the Scripture. It is very sacred ground, and I'm saying that for this reason. I'm not going to do it justice. No one ever has. I won't come close as some others have, but this is the message that everyone in the world needs to understand what Jesus has done. And so in a moment, I want us to read verses 26 to 31. We're not going to a lot of verses today, and then we're going to hit a sister passage in John this morning, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 19, because you'll see why that's important in a moment. So I'm realizing we have some visitors, and let me say thank you to all of you for being here this morning. Uh, it's a fuller crowd than we had last week, and I'm really thankful for that. So praise the Lord. Those of you that were on vacation or maybe not feeling well, we're really glad you're back this morning. Um, so I need to give some background uh, on, our, on our text. Uh, this is really the third week in the Roman phase of Jesus' trial. So bear with me for a moment. Some of you, you'll hear it for the first, some for the second, some for the third or fourth time. Jesus had two trials. There was a Jewish phase. They, not knowing who he was, found him guilty of blasphemy because he did claim and admitted that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. To them, that means he must die. That's blasphemy in their world. They're going to take him to the Roman governor. His name is Pontius Pilate. Now, remember a couple of weeks ago, we hit some very important section. I cannot review it all, but guys... 
Ladies and gentlemen, if you missed two weeks ago, you need to go back and listen to the first 15 minutes to understand why this happened this way. There's a tremendous dynamic of tension and animosity between the Jewish leaders and Pilate. They know each other well. They have years of experience. He hates them. He's arrogant, proud, stubborn. They hate him, especially more than other Roman leaders because of what he had done. Without reviewing it all, I'm just going to say, in his past, he had made some very unwise, foolish decisions that they ended up reporting him to his direct boss or his ultimate boss, the emperor. And shockingly to him is when the emperor Titus does not take his side, but takes the side of the Jews and rebukes him. So this is key. We're at a point where the Jewish leaders need Pilate to give a death penalty on their prisoner, Jesus. But Pilate needs to stay in the good graces. He cannot afford to offend them. He wants to give them what they're asking. You need to feel that. If at all possible, he will give them what they're asking, but it has to be legitimate. He has a sense of justice about him. Unsaved man, but he has a sense of justice. And the Romans prided themselves in justice. So to make a longer story that we've already covered shorter, they bring Jesus to him. They end up bringing three different charges, not blasphemy. They charge Jesus before the Roman governor of being a troublemaker, of leading the country astray. Pilate doesn't pay any attention to that because he knows he would have heard about it if that were true. Number two, they say, he has been teaching the Jews and forbidding them to pay their taxes. Again, he pays no attention to that one. But the third one, they say that he claims to be the Christ, the king of the Jews. That gets his attention. He has to question the Lord. He takes the Lord inside, away from outside, where he's meeting with them. He questions Christ. I will not review all of that. Here's the skinny. He comes back out, and he realizes that Jesus is not guilty of any crime. Jesus talked about how his kingdom is not of this world, and he's no threat to Caesar or to Pilate. Pilate understands this. He knows a criminal when he sees one, and this is not one. He comes out and declares to the Jews that he is not guilty. And what should have happened, he should have let him go, but he didn't. They became vehement and urgent. And as they began to do this, they said, he's been a troublemaker from Galilee all the way down to here. And that, if you were with us last week, this brings us up to that point. That led to two major attempts by Pilate to release Jesus and not have to make a decision himself. When he heard the word Galilee, he knows that that's Herod's jurisdiction. Herod's in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. So he says, I'm going to send you over to Herod. Jesus goes to Herod. Herod's excited. Pilate does not want to deal with the case. Herod is wonderfully excited about seeing Jesus. But Jesus will not talk to him, not a word. And so all that Herod can do is question him. He gets no answers. He finds no guilt in him. He sends him back to Pilate. So phase one was before Pilate. Phase two was before Herod. Phase three was back to Pilate. Pilate then tells the Jews, hey, I found no guilt in him. Herod has found no guilt in him. I'm going to punish him and release him. But again, they get vehement, very urgent. 
And then Pilate has this what seems like a wonderful idea because the crowd is gathering early on Good Friday morning and the Jews know that he has a custom that he's going to release one of their prisoners and they get to choose the prisoner and this is a custom. And he's agreed to it. Apparently he's been doing it for years. Finally, Pilate has the bright idea. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tweak the custom this year. I'm going to choose the most notorious prisoner they have, a man named Barabbas, who was a true seditionist, insurrectionist, and murderer. I'm going to put him right beside Jesus, and they're going to get to choose one of these two guys is going free on your streets today. Do you want the insurrectionist? Do you want the murderer, Barabbas? Or do you want the healer and teacher, the one that everyone in Israel loves, Jesus, who is called the Christ. Which one do you want to go free? But then there's a disruption in Pilate's world. His wife sends a message, and while he's receiving the message, the Jewish leaders mingle among the crowd, and they end up persuading the crowd, just take our word for it, ask for Barabbas to go free. And so the crowd, shockingly to Pilate, ends up asking for Barabbas to be turned free and for Jesus to be kept Uh, under prison arrest. And so that leaves Pilate like, well, what am I going to do with Christ, the one who is called the Christ? The crowd, at the bidding of the high priest and the chief priest, screams out, crucify him. When he asks, why? What evil has he done? They have no reason. All they do is get louder, crucify. And so that brings us up to where we're at this morning. Do you see the two attempts by Pilate? Number one, Herod will handle it. That backfires. Number two, the crowd will ask for Jesus to be released. That ends up backfiring as well. So that now brings us up to chapter 27. I'm going to review verse 26 because we really didn't touch the second part of the verse. Join me in verse 26, Matthew 27. Then he released for them Barabbas. And notice the wording here, having scourged Jesus, having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. So the scourging is alluded to in verse 26, but it's taken place separate at a separate time before, obviously, what we're getting ready to read in verse 27. Now flip over, I'm I'm in... Flipping over the page, look at verse 27 down to 31. So he has Jesus, he's already having scourged him. He then releases Barabbas, and he's, again, in Matthew's condensed version, he's going to have Jesus crucified. But in the meantime, now verse 27 to 31 is kind of actually tucked in the timeline as part of verse 26. I know that sounds confusing now, but that's why we're going to read John 19 in a moment. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. The Jews are on the outside. They're not coming inside. They'll be defiled, they think. So the soldiers take Jesus into the governor's headquarters, apparently into the courtyard. And they gathered the whole battalion before him, the whole battalion. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Note number one in your mind, scarlet robe on Christ, verse 29. And twisting together a crown. Scarlet robe, number two, crown. Twisting together a a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and putting a reed in his right hand. So now we have a robe, a crown, and a reed. We know what the reed stands for in the right hand. 
and kneeling. So there we have our fourth idea. There's a robe, a crown to read, and there's kneeling before him. And they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And so you have these five things that are taking place. You're like, wow, we know the theme. But verse 30, and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Would you back up with me again? Look at verse 28. I want to read it one more time here. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And then there's a break right there that we're going to see in John 19 in just a moment. But now from that, let's go ahead and jump to verse 31 here because this happens after. There's a gap of time. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. So guys, what we just read, I want you to kind of prepare your mind. Pilate's first attempt was Herod. His second attempt was this custom to release a prisoner. His third attempt is actually what we have read this morning, and it was back in verse 26. That's his third attempt to have Jesus released. You say, how is that an attempt to have Christ released? It doesn't sound like it. Well, let's go to John for a moment. Hold your spot here. Flip over to John, chapter 19. John 19. Page is turning. Phones scrolling. On your Bible app, not scrolling on anything else. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. There's your scourging. Doesn't mean Pilate did it himself. It means he ordered it to be done. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in what John calls a purple. So now we know it's a purplish scarlet robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So John adds that they're striking with their hands with Matthew and Luke that they struck him repeatedly with the reed. So everything so far is right on track. But now watch verse 4. Pilate went out again back to the Jews and said to them, Now this is important. See, I am bringing him out. I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So all this has been going on, and Pilate says, I'm going to bring him out to you. And sure enough, they do. Verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns. So verse 31 in the other passage has not happened. He's still here wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Guys, I wish my voice would allow me to read that like it really needs read today. Do you see what just happened? The Jesus that they take back for the scourging and what these soldiers do is not at all what the Jews are going to see coming back wearing this crown of thorn. They have no idea the mockery that's been made of Jews back behind in the, in the courtyard. But all they see is a totally different man. And this whole scene, everything we're studying today, was Pilate's third attempt to try to have Jesus released. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. In his mind, 
And you're going to say, this does not sound right. I'm back in Matthew now. And by the way, I am not one that is the great defender of Pontius Pilate. He did wrong. He absolutely did the wrong thing. But I want to be honest with how the scriptures present him. In his mind, the best I could tell, when he brought Jesus out on that balcony or back in front of them and says, Behold the man, I don't think it's this way. Ha! Behold the man. Look what we've done to your king. That's not it. Do you hear a different way that could be said? He's saying this as if, look at him. What's been done already is unjust and wrong. This is enough. This ought to satisfy you. So I want to propose to you, your note here, is that in Pilate's mind, he's, all that he allowed, his intention in allowing what he did, was strangely, in his mind, merciful. This is the merciful thing to do. And those of you who are like, wait, Jeff, I know a little bit about what scourging entails. There's nothing merciful in what Pilate did. Think with me. Is it merciful? In his mind, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to propose, I've got to stay calm for the voice sake. In his mind, he, he, he believes this is merciful. I want to present to you, was it? You say, it couldn't be. Could it have been? Here's his thinking. Number one, he may just get scourged to the point and look so horrible. What they would have seen is an absolutely bloody mess. I'm telling you, you've never seen anyone as bloody as this. Never. There would have been layers of darkness of dried and less dried and bright, fresh Red blood, all I mean that bright red that is all over him. Layers and layers. He was not standing the same when he comes back. In his mind, if they take pity on him because of what is done, then that will keep him alive and that will be a merciful thing. Pilate does not want to kill Jesus. The second thing, and this is going to sound even more strange, if they do not accept that and they insist on crucifixion, and I have to yield to that, Because I can't afford to be reported back to Rome. I'm going to lose my job and I'm going to be exiled or put in prison. By the way, that is what happens to Pilate later, a few years later, when the Jews report him again. He had a reason to be fearful. But in his mind, he's thinking, if they do not accept this, he ends up being crucified. Then maybe, just maybe, and probably, he will die sooner on the cross than if he had not been scourged. And what the soldiers did. So now as you're writing that, I want you to taste that. Put yourself in, a, in the crucified person's position. Is this merciful? He doesn't want Jesus to be killed. Maybe they'll take pity and say, you're right, that's enough. We're satisfied. That's his hope. Guys, I believe in my heart. It's not in the text. But I believe when Pilate told those soldiers to go scourge him, I think he probably pulled him aside to the leader and said, listen, I don't want him killed. Don't kill him. Do not let him die. Yes, sir. Hey, but make it count, sir. Don't kill him, but make it count. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir. (laughs) We can handle that. Don't kill him, but make it good. This is what he's thinking. So now I'm wondering, that second part, we know they're not going to accept it, and so in his mind, He should have him scourged because then he will die sooner on the cross. So put yourself in that position. In light of what we're about to study, and some of you already know this, was that merciful to have Jesus scourged if he does go to the cross and maybe he'll die sooner? I think if you were to go 
interview someone on a cross who was not scourged, and they're lasting up and down, up and down, suffocating, slowly dying over three or four days, that person would probably say, oh, I wish I had been scourged. I don't know that we can take their answer, though. To me, the only one who knows the answer is this immersive move is the person who has been scourged and is on the cross. Would they then say, I am really glad I'm not going to last as long as that guy? Because this is even worse than that. Is that possible? That's what's in Pilate's mind. I believe that's what I'm presenting to you this morning. Let's notice two things this morning. Number one, comes out of verse 26. Jesus is scourged by the Romans. Jesus is scourged by the Romans. I want to pause right here and let's ask ourselves this question. How should we approach this verse, this concept? How should we approach it? And I want to present a couple of ideas. I want, before we look at it, I want you to know we're not going to do a deep dive into it. Not going to. Uh, what, what I will do already makes me uncomfortable. Uh, this is an uncomfortable text. But I'm also not going to skip it either. Some would propose that really we should just say it, have an idea what it is, and let's quickly move on. Why would they say that? Again, if you're taking notes, write the following. What we're in is the Gospels. The Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I really want you to understand this. The Gospels tell us the facts about the suffering of Christ. The Gospels tell us the facts. They say what happened, the order of the happening, who did what. Gives us some of the details. But if we were to go past the Gospels, then we come to this book called Acts. It's another historical book about the church after the life of Christ. But then we hit this whole section of books in the New Testament called the Epistles. So catch what I'm saying. The Gospels tell us the facts about the sufferings of Christ. But the Epistles emphasize and, I want to find my word, focus not on the facts of the details of his suffering, they focus more on the theological meaning of his suffering. So there's two kind of different approaches to that. The gospels say what happened, here's the details, who did it. You can study that in history, get that understanding. But really when you go to the epistles, it's about the theological meaning. And so when you put the two together, if you were to ask me and say, Jeff, what is the New Testament's main tone concerning the sufferings of Christ. I will admit to you, it has to do with the theological significance of them. But not to be lost, even in the theological emphasis in the epistles, there's still an alluding often to blood. So we need to know that it being bloody was important. We read the Gospels and we find out why it was bloody and how it was bloody. I'm saying that for this reason. There are some people who believe, theologians, preachers, who would think it would be wrong to sensationalize a sermon and go over details of scourging and crucifixions. Just say it, give an idea, it's a beating, and they pin them to a cross and just talk about what the crucifixion means. And don't, don't go into the detail. Don't talk about the gore, right? That's what some would say. And I know that some would go too far in one direction and I believe to skip it is to go too far in the other direction. Here's why. God had his son die this way for a reason. And he had it recorded for us for a reason. 
And so if we don't, on, we don't do this often, but if we don't take the time and at least look at what this really meant, and yes, take a moment to picture it in our mind, then I think we're not doing what the Bible is calling. There are lessons for us to learn within the details. And so I disagree with some that would say skip it. The second thing about how we're going to approach the text is, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to be inadequate and your mind is also inadequate. You're not going to do a good enough job reading or listening or thinking about this text. We're not going to really feel the intensity of the text. We're not going to feel the pain that probably we should in the text. I tried something. I thought, okay, one of the ways that folks would probably feel it more than just reading it as it is is to try to interpose yourself into the text as if you're the one going through these things and imagine it happening to you. But your mind, you self-protect. Probably the way you would feel it the most is if you were to go home, spend some time, read it over and over, really get into deep thought, really picture the scene, and insert one or two people that you love the most in this world. Hear these things as I read any descriptions, and you picture them... And you hear them in that scene pleading for mercy. You hear them screaming in pain. That would make us feel it a little more. But there's a problem with that. You and me and your loved ones are sinners. We've all committed sin. And we deserve, because of our sin, anything that happens that is painful in our life. Because we've offended a holy God. We deserve that. And so if we only take that approach to try to feel the text a little weightier, we've missed the point. Here's the point. The being that is having this done to him so cruelly and tormentuously is none other than the Son of God. And we hear that like, right, Jeff, Son of God. No, this is the person who never sinned, never sinned. But more than never sinned, he always did the right things. The person this is happening to is the creator, the sustainer. The person, my pastor used to refer to him as the darling of heaven. If you ever picture that, heaven, the angels, this is their darling being. That's who this is happening to. There is a God, ladies and gentlemen, and he has glory. And the Bible says that Jesus is the radiance and the brightness of his glory. He's not the reflection of God's glory. He's the radiance of his glory. So until we pause and like, wait, we're just not equipped to feel that this way. That's, that's the shortcoming that we have this morning. So how are we going to approach it? Just kind of straightforward not sensational, and not lengthy. I will admit that there are a few people in our society, and there's probably somebody in here just by these numbers, that they empathize more than others, and they feel it. They can, like, feel this with the Lord. Um, I remember years ago I was teaching 11th grade class, and I was reading something. I forget what it was, but I was reading something about the... Crucifixion, and we went over some of the details in 11th grade Bible class at the Christian school. And I happen to remember this young man named Nathan. 
<laughs> and I looked at him, and he was right in this section, and I said, hey, Nathan, I was halfway through, and I looked at Nathan, I said, hey, Nathan, you probably need to go to your happy place and not really listen to what I'm saying. And right then, he had a look, and I thought he was kidding, like, ah, you're fooling. Pow, fell right out in the floor. He was as white as a sheet. Bless his heart. And thankfully, the science teacher from next door came over and started slapping him in the face, and he came to very quickly. If you have ever been that way, you may need to just, again, I'm not going to get gory, but I'm not just going to fly by. We need to understand Jesus was scourged by the Romans. What does that mean? And if you're of that type, then you need to take just a five or six minute trip to the beach in your mind. But the rest of us, let's, what I want to do is I want to blend some MacArthur's thoughts and some D.A. Carson and a quick line from Barclay and come back to MacArthur again because I needed to split them up to get the flow of what we're looking at. And then we'll get a quick thought from a gentleman named Krumacher and then we'll be on to the second point this morning. Would you look at verse 26 one more time? Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. He's going to be crucified, but he had him scourged first. MacArthur writes the following. I don't know about this, so these are men who have studied the historians of the day. I don't know anything about scourging. We don't do that. And so I'm going to borrow 100% from here on this first point from these men. MacArthur writes, so you have to now go into your mind and picture the scene of our Lord. The man to be scourged was tied to a post by the wrists high over his head. Let's pause. The man to be scourged was tied to a post by the wrists high over his head. So his, his wrists are not high here. They're out like that. They're high. How high? He writes, with his feet dangling... And his body taut, tight, taut. So it's not just, there needs to be something here that keeps the person stable. And the back is tight, and the hands are up over there. And I'm reading that, and I'm imagining the tiptoes are just barely able, maybe one at a time, to touch. They're stripped naked, by the way. They're stripped of their clothes, naked, in front of this whole battalion. We'll see how many that is in a moment. So this person is at a point where there is no defense whatsoever. Gravity is holding them still. Again, maybe a tiptoe here and there, and their arms are up high, and, and their back's completely tight. MacArthur continues. Often there were two scourgers, one on either side of the victim, who took turns lashing him across the back. So there's what scourging is. Lashes across the back why would there be two he doesn't say but in my mind I'm assuming why there are two one would be right-handed and one would be left-handed or ambidextrous that way they can be strategic and make sure everything ends up covered because it's about what is scourging it's lashes across the back Carson now inserts I wove these together Carson writes among the Jews so this is not a Jewish scourging but he writes, among the Jews, scourging was limited to 40 lashes. So in the Jew, this is in the Bible. You say, the Bible? God called for scourging? Absolutely. The Bible allowed for flogging. And the Jews were limited. You could have up to 40 lashes. 
They never gave 40 lashes because they only went to 39 in case they miscounted. They didn't want to break God's law. Carson continues. Among the Jews, scourging, so get it? Jews, each strike is one lash. But the Romans were restricted by nothing but their strength and whim. Catch what that means. As long as the scourgers feel strength, they're going to be sweating by the end of this. And what we're talking about is this person is exposed and the guy that is right-handed like me is probably has the whip in his hand and he's going to run up and lash out. And the left-handed guy is going to do. They're going to take turns and they're working up a, stre- a sweat and they can get tired. I've read where these can last up to like 15 minutes potentially. Carson continues. So in other words, what limits them? Their whim. You wouldn't hope they're in a good mood. You'd hope they're in a merciful mood. You might would hope that you remind this, these guys of someone. And maybe there's a little mercy. That's all you could hope for. They're not limited. Carson continues. Now, here's the worst part. The whip was the dreaded flagellum. The dreaded flagellum. Made by plating pieces of bone or lead into leather thongs. So you have leather thongs and you have pieces. In your mind, picture the nails that put the horseshoe on the horse's hoof. Picture those cut and then stuffed through, pushed through pieces of leather and then balls of leather and pieces of bone that are jagged. And oh, by the way, he writes, this is made by piece, plating pieces of bone or leather into leather thongs. The Jews, I'm sorry, the, the Romans, one version of the flagellum they had was called the cat of nine tails. We know this. It could have nine strips of leather. It could have fewer, but it could have up to as many. We're assuming that the Lord would have been whipped and beaten by a flagellum that had multiple, perhaps even as many as nine. So whereas the Jews would have one lash 39 times, potentially each one of these is up to nine. Each one over and over and the next line is sufficient without me adding anything to it. Severe flogging, not only, Carson writes, severe flogging not only reduced the flesh to bloody pulp, but could open up the body until the bones were visible and the entrails exposed. MacArthur, I remember writing that it would be the kidneys often and the spleen would be exposed. Barclay, I'm going to have you write one line because to me it speaks a lot. In his findings, here's what he found. Few remained conscious to the end of it. Few men being flogged, scourged, remained totally conscious all the way to the end of the flogging. Now back to MacArthur to finish this. He says, many men died. Let that sink in. Many men died of of scourging before they could be taken out for execution. Picture the scene. You killed him. They're dead. I didn't mean to. They died literally during the scourging. Never make it out for crucifixion. That would be merciful. But he continues. To be honest with the text, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, MacArthur is correct. We do not know the full extent of Jesus' wounds. We don't know how many. But here's what we know. He was so weakened by them that he was not able to carry his own cross, whereas others are. They laid it on him really good. He paused. 
<coughs> Excuse me. I didn't do a good job of uh, not getting loud. And now I pay for it now. That's all right. Here we go. One more thought from a man named Krumacher. And in his mind, here's what he's doing. Picture as if you're following the Lord, coming into that courtyard. And again, this is peace. I'm cutting some things out. Krumacher writes, look at yonder pillar. You got a picture. Do you see it? There's a pillar. Look at yonder pillar, black, with the blood of murderers and rebels. It's black, especially on one side. Look at the rude and barbarous beings who, like bloodthirsty hyenas in human form, busily surround their victim. Here they come. They tear off his clothes. Bind those hands which were ever stretched out to do good. Press his gracious visage, his face, firmly against the shameful pillar. And having bound him with ropes in such a manner that he cannot move or stir, they begin their cruel task. Guys, before we hit the second point, I just want to remind you of one other thing. In fulfillment of Isaiah 53... The Lord Jesus Christ never said one word during any of these sufferings. Never said a word. Never cried out that he's innocent, he didn't do anything, he doesn't deserve this. Never did he lash out vehemently toward those that were doing this to him. Never did he cry out, please stop, I beg you no more, that's enough. He never cried out in any way. Isaiah 53, I put a marker here, verse 7. He was oppressed... And he, this is 700 years in advance, prophecy about the Messiah. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He never said a word. You couldn't do that. I dare say they never had anyone else who never spoke out in anger or in pleading for mercy. Never would they have had that. This man was different. The second thing before we go to the second point is this. This all happened because of your sin. Your sin and the person beside you and my sin and the people that you love the most are what caused this to happen. Isaiah wrote in verse 4 of chapter 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Second thing this morning, verses 27 to 31. Would you notice with me, not only Jesus scourged by the Romans, but now we see Jesus mocked. By the Romans. Jesus is mocked by the Romans. Look at verse 27. 
Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. So you work with me. Let me make sure that you're still with me, right? A battalion is one-tenth of a Roman legion. How many was in a Roman legion? How many soldiers are in a Roman legion? It's an odd-sounding number to us. It's thousands. How many thousand? Anybody? 6,000. So a battalion, also called a cohort in Greek, a battalion cohort is one-tenth of that. Here comes the Lord. How many of them are gathering around him? You tell me the answer is how many soldiers? So 600. Surely some are not on duty. Some were not present. But we're talking about surely four, five, possibly as many as 600 men are gathering around the Lord. Do you sense this picture? Now verse 28. So they brought him before them, the whole battalion. And then we read verses 28, 29, 30, particularly those passages. If you're taking notes, write this thought. We know that Pilate called for Jesus to be scourged. That's Pilate's order. But all that we read here in verses 27 to 31, these soldiers are apparently just taking it upon themselves to do this separate from Pilate's orders. I'm going to assume Pilate knows about it because it's a normal activity. Anyone who's going to be crucified is going to be thrown to the wolves, to the mercy of the soldiers who are going to carry it out. But this time it's the whole battalion is there to watch. And to them, this is a delightful and a delectable thing. I'm going to borrow from a man named James Stalker. And again, I only have this and I think one other quote this morning. We really needed to borrow those, especially on the scourging. But on this scene right here, what's going on with these soldiers? Stalker writes the following. And it'll take a moment to get to your quote. So just kind of listen and, and take it in. Stalker writes, they enjoyed it you gotta, you got to feel this. So here's these 600 soldiers, Roman soldiers. They enjoyed it as schoolboys enjoy the terror of a tortured animal. Can you picture that? Guys, I know there's some schoolboys. They're not interested in that, but there's a lot of schoolboys. You give them a tortured little animal, and that's good times. That, right during recess or pee, what, what are y'all doing over there? They got some little frog, and they've cut his leg off, and they've gouged him, and some part of his intestines are poking out, and they kind of just mess with him, and maybe they got a little magnifying glass. It may be insects, frogs, turtles, you name it, a little, you know, a little rat, a little squirrel, a little rabbit. These are good times because it's in us. This is what I want you to understand. This is in us, and this is what Stalker's writing. They enjoyed it as schoolboys enjoy the terror of a tortured animal. He writes, it must be remembered that these men who on the battlefield, who on the battlefield were inured to bloodshed, these men were accustomed to bloodshed. And he writes, these are men who at Rome found their chief delight in watching sports of the arena where gladiators butchered one another. This is what we're dealing with. And that, don't you understand? This is in us. You say, I'm not that way. You've been reared in a way where this is not in you. There are people who love, like, just get some dogs and let them fight to the death. In their day, it was cool to go to Rome and let's get this prisoner and this prisoner and let's give them each some weapons and fight to the death. And people pay money to go see that and they make bets. And when that's boring, let's get 10 together. And let's give me all the 10 prisoners. Let's give them a weapon. And let's just see who's the last one standing. And they just butcher each other. And these are good times to these people. That's what we're talking about. Now your note. 
Stalkerites, their horseplay, and this is all this is to them, their horseplay took the form of mock coronation. Why a mock coronation? I'm going to propose that what they do with Jesus is unique to him because they probably never heard anyone claim to be a king, and they, as Stalker writes, why would they do a mock coronation? He writes, they had caught the drift of the trial sufficiently to know that the charge against Jesus was that he pretended to be a king. They know that's the charge, and so I'm assuming Pilate says, you make it count, oh, we will, and they go and they scourge, and now it's time for them to have a little more fun on top of the scourging. And this man claims to be a king. (laughs) Every king needs a crown and a scepter and a robe, and we have just the right things. And so they're going to hook him up in their mind with this mock. Every king should have homage paid to them. Every king should be knelt before. And so that's what they're going to do. Other prisoners, you know they hear it from these guys. This is what you get when you murder in the Roman Empire, and they punish them. This is what you get. You start a riot or a protest against our empire, here's how you pay. You break our laws, here's what happens to you. Oh, you think you're a king? So they go out, and apparently this red robe would have been maybe an extra hanging in a closet somewhere in the palace that one of the Roman soldiers would wear. Found an extra, oh, that looks like it would have fit him. King needs a robe, put the robe on him. King needs a scepter. Notice the scepter here is called a reed. This is not a staff. It's not as solid as a staff. But don't think in your mind like a flimsy little reed beside the water with a, 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 you know, a head of a flower on the top and a little skinny stalk. No, remember they're striking him with this. So they're talking about something that's fairly sturdy, like a cane. Probably we're talking about something like bamboo. Because every king needs a scepter. we got this robe for you. We're going to put this scepter, this reed in your right hand. And then there's the crown. And the crown is made of thorns. What's the significance of the crown? Now, they had two ideas of a crown. A king would wear a diadem. And a diadem would have gold and jewels. But they're not going to put that on the Lord. Because Caesar himself also wore another kind of crown. Caesar would wear a stephanos. Not just a diadem, but a stephanos, a a laurel, laurel wreaths put into a circle like he's the victor, the victor's crown. If your name is Stephen, then this is what your name means, the victor's crown. And so they're going to make a stephanos for the Lord, but they don't make it of laurel, they make it of thorns. Now work with me real quick. The world has flowers because God made flowers. The world has fish because God made fish. Why does the world have thorns? Because of the curse of sin, thorns were not part of the original creation. So they unknowingly take thorns and they form it into a circle and they end up somehow pressing it down upon his head. In essence, this is the Lord in God's plan taking the curse upon himself and having it pressed down onto him. Now guys, I read someone said there's up to 35 to 45 different plant types in this area of the world where they could have taken and made thorns. Some are brown and dried looking, but there's others that could have been very green and leafy looking. I have a picture on my phone. I thought about putting it on the screen, but I'm thinking you guys probably have the same wild thing that's growing in your house. 
It's over on the side of our house. This thing has totally taken over these big bushes that we have like this, and we're probably just going to have to cut the whole bushes down to get rid of this stuff. I mean, it is gnarly. Here's what I'll say. If you ever want to come dig it out for me, uh, feel free. You will not touch this stuff. I, don't come to my house and start digging around. I'm going to get it one of these days. All I'm saying is anytime I mess around, if it just barely touches my hand, it lights me on fire. I can't imagine if something like that was put on a person's head and just pressed down the pain and the blood that would just begin to pour. And this is what they're doing to Christ. A crown of thorns plaited and put on his head. Guys, all that we just read, all that's in verse 28, 27, 28, 29, 30, this is abject torment. Abject torment. Cruelty. This is cruelty. Hey, guys, listen. If we could time travel someone that had just been scourged like Jesus, not Jesus, but like Jesus, if there was a man that had just been scourged that was in our building this morning, you know what we would do. In any other setting than this, that person would have to be get, gotten some immediate medical attention, immediate, in hopes that maybe, maybe they will live. Maybe they will live. We would have to rush them to the hospital. We'd have to clean those wounds. Start putting blood because there's so much blood loss. Start the antibiotics to kind of keep the infection and the sepsis that's getting ready to start setting in. Try to clean these wounds and get multiple people sewing it up. And maybe they will live. That's what we're talking about. Someone who is in the process of dying. And yet these men don't take any pity like we scourged him. And now he's going to be crucified. It's like, no, no, no. Let's add more and more torment, torture, cruelty, physical and psychological on top of what has been going. Verse number 30 in Matthew says, And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Mark 15, 19 in the New American Standard version of that. Catch this word. Because multiple people that I read translated that verse 30 included this idea. You have to get it. Mark 19, 15, 19, New American Standard says, And they repeatedly beat his head with the reed and spit on him. Repeatedly did that. Over and over. you got to know, every time they're hitting this, it is driving this deeper and deeper into his head, into his skin, down to the skull, causing more pain and new fresh blood. He is losing massive amounts of blood from his head. That's what's happening to the Lord. Notice verse 29. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. If you're taking notes, amid so much physical pain and suffering of the Lord, we may be tempted, if we're not careful, to kind of diminish the mocking and the spitting and the psychological abuse that has taken place like yeah we have we're focusing on all this physical abuse we can be tempted to diminish the psychological abuse that's taking place don't do that have you ever been humiliated let me ask it a little differently maybe it's you or maybe it's your loved one some of you be like right so there's probably someone listening right now and you're still ticked off because your child was recently humiliated in a way that really damaged them. It's really bothered them. Or it happened years ago. 
Have you ever been humiliated? Have you ever been intentionally shamed? Have you been mocked? Have you been spit upon? Have you ever been humiliated, shamed, and mocked in front of 600 people? Have you been been humiliated and mocked by 600 people? Have you been humiliated and mocked by 600 people as a group, and then many of them taking their individual time to do it as well? Don't discount this. When's the last time someone spit in your face? When's the last time someone got angry and said the worst of things right in your face as they grit their teeth and literally their skin is shaking because they have so much feeling toward you and then they spit? And then another and another. You're you're sitting there thinking that's never happened. Don't discount this if we don't know what the Lord is going through. The last quote I'll use is a man named Spurgeon. You've heard of him. This stood out to me. It's short but it stood out to me. He writes, get what Spurgeon says. Please hear it. He stoops to save us, and we laugh at him while he stoops. Now feel that. He's letting these soldiers represent us, and he's right. He, Jesus, stoops to save us, and we laugh at him, While he stoops, he leaves the throne that he may lift us up to it. But while he is graciously descending, the hoarse laughter of an ungodly world is his only reward. You see how twisted that is? He stoops down, we laugh at him. He had to leave the throne. He can't die it. On the throne as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God that is spirit. He had to become a human being. And as he becomes a human being, he he submits not just to die, but to die the death of the cross. And as he is intentionally out of love, stooping way down to die this death, what what are we, our people doing? We're just tagging on and piling on, laughing. That's his reward for graciously descending to us. In my mind as I read verse, look at verse 30. Now verse 29 again. Look in the middle. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. In my mind, I I easily picture that. I easily picture it. I'm picturing after multiple have already had their way. The scourging is finished. He's apparently seated. And they keep putting this reed in his right hand. And they've got the robe and they have the crown. I imagine some leader among the 600 and I can feel the chatter among them like hey 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 it's so and so this this is going to be good and he's stepping forward and and he takes a serious approach it seems fellas we shouldn't be so disrespectful this is just wrong and then he addresses the Lord listen I apologize for my friends they get out of hand sometimes they do that I have a hard time keeping him in check. So God, no, 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 really, really. And picture him as he then bows before Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews. What a great honor it is to be in your presence. And finally he stands up, still respectful. See, guys, that's what I'm talking about. And then all at once, in one fell swoop, one motion, as hard as he can, pow, down goes the Lord again. 
And while he's down, he starts spitting on him, grabs the reed, starts hammering on his head because they did this repeatedly, all the time yelling, did you really think I would ever bow to you, you worthless Jew? Spitting on him. You say, Jeff, I don't know that it really got to that level. Oh, that's the tip of the iceberg. This is what the Lord is going through. When he's taken out on the balcony or out before the Jews, they have no clue the level of harassment and anti-Semitism and, and Jew hate that was taken on going on the Lord Jesus Christ behind the scenes in the courtyard. And this happened over and over. And you're thinking, Jeff, I wonder what made it stop. I'm wondering the same thing. When did they stop? Did it just get old? Apparently, as we leave Matthew and finish at John, go back to John 19. Let's finish over at John 19. Apparently what caused it to stop was that Pilate is going to call for Jesus to be brought out so the Jews can look at him. We've read verses 1 through 5, but I want to go back and catch verse 5 again and verse 6 with it. I want to encourage, if you get time, you say, Jeff, I want to know kind of the fuller story. Exactly how does phase three of the trial before Pilate, the last final phase of his trials before he's sent off, how does it finalize? How does it all end? Well, then you need to go read very slowly verses 1 through 16, and you'll have the the, the complete picture. I'm not going to take time to read it all. I'm going to summarize it. Look at verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, I believe this way, behold the man. Like, look. This is enough. This is enough. Call it off. We're not doing that. I'm not doing that. But notice verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers, notice not the crowd. Apparently the crowd's taking note. Like, wow, what have y'all done? He looks totally different. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out. This, they, they will not budge. They cried out. Crucify him. Crucify him. Let me pause. Excuse me. Another one. I'm going to cut my mic just for a moment. Maybe Brandon can edit those 30 seconds. We'll see. Now look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Watch Pilate's response. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. You do it. You see, he's he's resolute now. No, I'm not doing it. This was enough. This should have worked. Crucify him. Without me reading all the rest, they then pull out their last two aces in the hole. Here's the last two things they have. They say that we have a law, and anyone who has made themselves out to be the Son of God deserves death, and he has done that. You go home and read the text. Now listen, Pilate has been afraid of them all throughout, but when he heard, he knows Jesus has claimed to be the Christ, the King of the Jews. This is new information. He claims to be the Son of God. This scares him to death. He sends Jesus inside. He goes back inside. He asks Jesus, Where are you from? The Lord does not answer. Again, I'm reading between the lines because I think he would have asked this multiple. 
Where are you from? The Lord does not answer. I'm picturing Pilate again, again, paraphrasing what he in essence does. Are you going to sit there and not answer me? Do you not realize what's happening? You're about to die. Your life's in my hands. I can have you set free or I can have you crucified. You better be speaking to me. You better start talking. And the Lord says, you don't have any authority over me except what authority has been given to you. And then he ultimately says, the one who has turned me over to you has the greater sin. I want you to remember that. I'm now reading. It's not on the screen. I'm reading verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all. This is Jesus. Unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That's pretty clear who he's talking about. There's a man outside. He's the main one. He's the one that delivered me. He has greater sin than you. After hearing that, now look at verse 12. Pilate, I believe, is absolutely resolute. He's done. I'm not doing it. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But they brought out their last and most powerful ace in the hole. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Translation, if you release him, we will reporting you to Caesar that you had a man who claimed to be a king in your possession and you let him go and you are no friend of Caesar. And as a result, verse 16... So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Take your next to the last note if you're taking those this morning. This right here just gave us, verses 1 through 16, gave us the final conclusion of phase 3 and all the trials of Christ. Three times Pilate makes, in his mind, a strong attempt to have Jesus released. He sent him to Herod. He tried to have the, the, the mob choose Jesus to be released. They chose Barabbas. And here he tried to stir up pity within them by having Jesus scourged. None of it worked. Listen, I'm going to have you change your note because I could really validate this by what I have written on the back here. All right? But I'm not going to go over them all. Not only did Pilate make three attempts to release Jesus, but Pilate pronounced him not guilty at least five times. So I can't remember what word I have there for you. He, he, he had him declared innocent, not guilty, at least five times. I know I used the word three times a few weeks ago. Some have seen as many as seven times that Pilate does this. I can easily defend between Luke and Matthew and John five times that Pilate declares him innocent. Furthermore, in verse 11, Jesus very clearly says that Caiaphas is more guilty than Pilate. Pilate is guilty. He's just letting him know, hey, the one who sent me over to you, he is more guilty than you are. He has the greater sin. But when it was all said and done, the final conclusion is that Pilate chose to protect himself rather than protecting the Lord. Rather than allow himself to get in trouble with Rome and to lose his job and to be put in prison and to be exiled, rather than let that happen, he lets an innocent person crucified. He lets Jesus be crucified. So I want to transition lastly to this last note. And you have all these bullet points, and I'm going to hit them quickly. Guys, if this was Wednesday night, here's what we would do. We'd take, 50, we'd take 10 minutes, and I'd say, I just want you to dwell on these verses, these six verses, and I just want you to write what are the lessons that we learn. So I narrowed it down to seven, and then by the time I finished, I've built it back up to ten. 
Uh, so let me give you the seven, and I'll throw out the other three if you want to write them at the bottom. What are lessons and several things that we need to remember as we've studied? Now, so what's our takeaway? Jesus was scourged and Jesus was mocked by the Romans. What's our takeaway? Number one, the sufferings of Jesus, number one, reveal humanity at its worst. This is us at our worst. This is humanity at its worst. All that we just read. That night before, most of you will remember that the Jews had pummeled and beaten and slapped and spit on the Lord Jesus Christ themselves. And here, this morning, the Romans do much the same things, except they do it on a lot more cruel, more effective, much more painful way. I'm going to give you my opinion. The Jews were worse. They weren't as painful in what they did, but they're worse because they hated Jesus. And they had all this evidence that he really was the Son of God. These Romans don't know him. These guys are brought in for the Passover. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't have the evidence. But the Roman soldiers, though not as bad because they did it not out of hatred, what does that tell about mankind? This shows humanity at its worst because it shows we don't have to know somebody or hate somebody to be cruel to them. The Jews were worse. Roman soldiers, you're not far behind. You don't even have to hate somebody to be cruel. Secondly, this reveals not only humanity at its worst, it reveals God's love at its best. You want to know God's love at its best, then study the sufferings of Christ that we just talked about this morning and what we're going to see next week. This is the love of Christ at its best. I'm probably talking right now to someone in the last month, you have even faintly or greatly questioned the love of God. I just, do you even love me, Lord? If you have done that, if you're ever tempted to do that, don't do that. The love of the, the Father and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ can never be questioned. This, this proves this is the love of God. God loves you. He has done what he needs to do to save you at a great cost. Never question the love of God. Number three. This reveals the courage of Jesus. This reveals the courage. Why? Because he knows every detail in advance before it happens. I thought about 9-11, 2001. If we could go back in time and interview one of those people, could you imagine one of those people that were on the upper floors that it got so terrible, so hot, that they decided to jump, and we saw them jumping on the video. Could you imagine if you could go back in time and one of them knows every detail of what's going to happen that day and yet they still went to their office that morning? Could you, you said no one would ever do that. What they went through is nothing compared to what the Lord went through. He knew every detail and yet he still went there in, knowing in advance. He chose to do it. Which leads us to the fourth conclusion from today's text. The sufferings of Jesus reveal to us Jesus' complete, utter surrender to the will of God. The complete surrender. Whatever it is, Jesus is going to do it. And he knows what the will of God is. That spoke to me this way. Jeff, the will of God is such that the one who knows how important the will of God is did anything, anything that the Father wanted done as long as it ultimately pleased the Father. At the greatest cost of anyone ever, Jesus is so 
intent. I will please you and fulfill your will for my life. I will do anything. And he ends up doing everything. God may call you to do something. You're like, man, I don't really like that. That's going to cost me. It's going to be painful. It could hurt. It's not my favorite. Guys, you ought to make, we need to make up our mind. Lord, I just want to please you, whatever it is Jesus did. Number five, the sufferings of Christ give us the example, an example for Christians who are enduring pain. I'm looking at a room right now of folks, many of you have chronic situations of difficult, difficulty and suffering. Can I I'll not have you turn there? Just can I read to you what the Bible says? Because Jesus has set an example for us that we ought to take this home. You know, that, that's me. That's something I can take home. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of the Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 3. Actually, back up to verse 2. Listen to this. The writer of Hebrews says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now watch verse 3. Consider him. Think about, really consider him, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You say, Jeff, I'm ready to quit I'm tired of the life that I'm living. I'm tired. It's, it's a struggle in the Christian life. I'm tired of this situation, fighting my own sin, fighting myself here, fighting that. I'm getting weary and tired. Go back and study the sufferings of Christ. We're told, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. That's enough of that one. Because there's another thought. I am skipping. Number six, remember that his sufferings were completely vicarious. Those are our sins that are being paid for and punished in him. Our, he never did one thing wrong. Our sins are the ones being punished. He has taken it vicariously upon himself. He is our substitute. And then your last one that is written, you'll see on the screen. Jeff, what should be a takeaway this morning? I don't know about you guys, but as I think about the sufferings of Christ... They should stir up within you love for Jesus and hatred of sin. Love for Jesus, hatred of sin. It is our sin that caused the Lord to have to go through this. So if you say, Jeff, that's kind of weird. You're talking about time and the effect of time now. Something's already been done. God knows all time. Ladies and gentlemen, for real, if you know that your sin is only adding to what the Lord went through, you say, but that was 2,000 years ago, I understand. But if you know that your sin is only adding to what Christ had to pay for, you ought to be hating your sin. Hate your sin and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the last three lessons I would offer you that are not on the screen. The sufferings of Christ reveal to us God's hatred of sin. If you're here this morning, say, yeah, I understand. Everybody sins. We all sin. Okay, we all sin. Don't belittle that. Don't look at it as small. This gives just a hint of God's hatred for sin. He will not allow sin into heaven. Number eight. You with me? This is key. The takeaway of Christ's sufferings is this. The Father would not have allowed the sufferings of Christ if they were not going to be sufficient to pay for sin. He never would have allowed it. The father wouldn't have let his son go through all of this if, oh, that's just not enough. 
We tried, but that doesn't pay for sin. Oh, that pays for all sin. This is why the father let his son go through this. This is why we dare not try to add our good works to what Christ has already done. The father has decided this is enough. And that brings us to my last thought, I think. Jesus's intentional sufferings, I mean intentionally leaving heaven to come mainly for this. Guys, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the whole world. Stack them all up. Where have you ever heard anything like this before? I've never heard anything like this from any other religion. It doesn't exist. This is what makes Christianity so unique. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just before we pray. I want to make one thing clear, and then I want to call upon Christians to take three quick action steps. One thing needs to be made clear. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Very important what I'm about to say. Please listen. Tune your mind in. Feeling pity for Jesus in his sufferings. If you're sitting here this morning like, I've never heard all of that. I've never thought of it that way. Wow. I feel so sorry for Jesus and what he had to endure. What you need to understand, friend, is that feeling pity for Jesus and his sufferings has never saved one person from their sins. Many people in hell have heard sermons just like this. And they felt moved and compassion and pity for Jesus and wish they could go back in time and make a difference and not have it be quite so bad. Feeling pity for Christ and empathizing with Him does not save you from your sins. The only thing that saves you from your sins is putting your faith, your trust in what He did on the cross. When He shed His blood that satisfied the wrath of God the Father against your sins. Yes, his death was vicarious. The theological meaning is this. Christ died for you. And the Bible says that the only way to be saved is by putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. I just got to ask. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but is there anyone here this morning? You've been dancing around Christianity for your whole life, but you've never become a Christian. What better day than this to say, that's it. Jesus, you have won me with your love. I give up. I am not going to be ashamed. Would you, if this is you, if I'm talking to one person this morning, would you right where you're sitting, right where you're sitting, believe the promises of the Bible enough to just talk to God right now. Talk to God and say, God, I am a sinner. You are right about me. I am a sinner. I am sorry for my sins. God, I repent of my sins. But Lord, thank you. Tell him, thank you for sending your son to pay for my sins with his sufferings. Tell him, Father, thank you for shedding Christ's blood for my sins. 
And I dare you, I dare you, talk to God with confidence in His promises and say, God, right now, I believe you so much. I am just, without moving a muscle, God, I am just receiving your forgiveness. of. I'm receiving your salvation right now. I believe you. I'm putting all my faith and all my trust once and for all in Jesus, His sufferings, His death for me. Father, I take it right now. Do that right now if you've never done that. Christians, be honest with yourself and ask this question. When's the last time you've talked specifically to Jesus and said, Jesus, thank you for your sufferings and your cross. Has it been a while? Do that now. Christians, has it been a while since you've talked to the Father and said, Father, thank you for giving your son. I can't believe you gave your son. He had omnipotence, and you have omnipotence. You could have stopped it at any point, and you let it happen for me. You love us so much. God, it's been a long time since I've said thank you for the cross and the sufferings of Christ. Thank him for that right now. Then let's stand. As we stand this morning, just before I pray, the last action step is between any Christian and the Father this morning. As I pray, do you need to just have your own conversation with the Lord? Anybody? Just between, don't raise your hand. Just in your own heart, answer this question. Is there some unconfessed sin that just hearing about Jesus' sufferings, you're like, Jeff, man, I hate my sin. Then talk to the Father and say, Father, I hate my sin. I hate what I have done. I'm confessing it to you right now. I don't want it to be part of Christ's sufferings, Lord. By your grace, I'm not going to do that again. Would you confess your sin as I pray? Lord, Lord, once again, I'm kind of surprised that uh, you did this a few months ago. You let my voice hold up, and I'm really surprised by that. Lord, there was twice I thought, thought it was over and it would be done. I'd have to wrap up, but Lord, I don't even know that these folks realize how big a deal that really is because I know condition of, of my voice you, you, you did something great there and I thank you I pray Lord that you have used these thoughts in this very broken way that I've tried to share this Lord very broken God would you please use this in our life in some way for a beautiful purpose to make us love Jesus more and to make us love you more and to hate our sin more let that be our takeaway. Father, if there's one that is still yet on the fence about was Jesus' death enough to pay for all of their sin, Lord, let them realize this was enough. This was enough. You're trustworthy, and Jesus is trustworthy. God, you're going to have to give them faith. They don't have it. I didn't have it when I was nine years old, Lord. I really didn't have it. You're going to have to give it to them. They need it. So, Lord, whoever that is in this room this morning, dancing around for years Lord I don't know what they're waiting on but they need you to get them across and so I pray that you will drag them by faith to the cross and let them see Jesus as totally sufficient and trust you and your promises are true you can't lie and you said whoever believes on your son 
will receive everlasting life. And Lord, if any has not done that, I pray that they would do it. And Lord, in closing, if someone did that this morning, they just put their faith and trust in you, would you give them boldness to share that with somebody today? Go public with it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.